hang on. I have a stink bug on my microphone. <gasps> okay. Hey, just a second. I'm going to walk away so I can shoot it outside. <laughs> hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 224. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, you know what we do here. Each week, I help a guest and hopefully some of you choose your next read. Well, I hope this week you're planning on making your next read my next book. Don't overthink it. Don't Overthink It comes out March 3rd, so right now you still have a chance to pre-order yourself a copy and snag the bonuses we put together for all those who pre-order. So right now, call your bookstore and ask them to order you a copy or click one of the links in the show notes on your podcast player. Then you can enter your receipt number and email address into our pre-order form, also linked to the show notes that's at overthinkbook.com. You'll get instant access to the Don't Overthink It video course, which is already helping readers. You also get an access code for a free ebook of my second book, an essay collection called I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. And then after release, you also get a code for a free audiobook version of Don't Overthink It. Readers, this is your only opportunity to get the book in two formats for the price of one. If you're listening now and are inclined to buy the book, a pre-order would help me so much. In today's publishing landscape, pre-orders are so important. At this point in the process, what pre-orders do is build buzz, nudge reviewers to give a book coverage, and determine marketing budgets, three things that are hugely important to a book's success. Many of you have kindly asked what you can do to support me as a podcaster and as an author, and right now, your pre-order would be such a help. And if you then wanted to tell your friends about the book, that would be amazing. Pre-order Don't Overthink It wherever new books are sold, including at your favorite independent bookstore. Thanks in advance, and happy reading. Like many readers, today's guest, Lacey Young, is creative, but her writing hobby is beginning to clash with her book selections, so she came to me with the question, how do I pick books that inspire me to write without being too influenced by authors who write in my genre? It's a tricky problem, but it's totally one we can work through. You'll hear why these days Lacey is ready to steer her reading life toward more challenging waters, and also ready to tackle the titles on what her husband jokingly calls her bookshelf of shame. Longtime listeners, you know I have thoughts about that phrasing, and I can't wait to talk all about it with Lacey and with you today. Let's get to it. Lacey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Anne. I have to say everybody in my family knows that I'm speaking with you today. (laughs) (laughs) Do you come from a family of readers? You know, it's funny, I don't. Neither of my parents are particularly big readers. My mother is a fan of thrillers, but my dad doesn't read at all. But the one great service they did for me, or at least my mother did, was make sure that I read a lot when I was growing up. So they always brought me to the library. And it was just a sure thing from then on, really. Now, I know you're in Calgary now. Is that where you grew up? I actually grew up in a small northern town in Alberta, eight hours north of Calgary. You know, so when I was growing up, there wasn't there wasn't a whole ton to do except really go to the library. You know, we have really long winters, so I often found myself sort of cooped up with a book indoors. Because, you know, when it's minus twenty outside, you can't really do much. Oh, that hurts. Yes. <laughs> but it's great reading weather. It is. It is. I think part of my journey towards being a reader was also, 
encouraged by the fact that when I was growing up, I was I was not always in the best of health. So I spent a lot of time indoors. You have to really amuse yourself when you're inside and everybody else is outside. But I, I can't regret any of it because it's really such a huge part of my life now. What you said um, puts me in mind of something that happened in my childhood. Our experiences, I imagine, are not the same. And at the same time, I do vividly remember this time when I was babysitting in my regular babysitting job I had for this little girl, filling the gap between when her school ended and when her mom got home. And I realized in the course of our afternoon that she had chicken pox. And I had never had chicken pox. And I am old enough that the vaccine was not routinely administered when you were a child. There was no vaccine to my knowledge. This is something I got as a late teen or maybe early adult. But I thought it's highly contagious. I've never had it. She has chicken pox. This, like I'm going to miss school for two weeks. So in the course of the like two or three hours we spent together, I went from shock, anger to just full on planning. Okay, I'm going to be stuck at home for two weeks. My parents have had it. That's going to be fine. Can I get like the teach yourself German cassette tapes <laughs> from the local bookstore? How many books do I have at home on my shelf? I was literally making a list of library books my mom could pick up for me because I wasn't going to leave the house. And I was deep enough into this plan that by the time the mother got home and was like, oh, she hasn't been contagious for a week. What are you talking about? I mean, honestly, I was deeply disappointed at that point. <laughs> illness can sometimes really be a gateway to the interior life. You know, it's never fun, but at the same time, you certainly are given the opportunity to read books that you probably otherwise might not have time or, or interest in. So yeah, I understand that. I understand <laughs> part of the disappointment really when you didn't get a chance to do it. Gateway to the interior life. What beautiful phrasing. Oh, thank you. So Lacey, it sounds like your love of reading started young. What happened as you got older? I continued to to read a lot. I think the breaking point sort of came for me when I was in university, when I started reading uh, for academic essays and things like that. And oh, and <laughs> I undertook a course in English literature. That was my degree. And it took me years after that to learn how to enjoy reading a book again. Oh, no. Yes. You really just called your English literature studies the breaking point oh, in your I reading Oh, I guess life. I did. Oh, that's so embarrassing. No, no, it's not embarrassing. People always assume I'm an English major. And the reason I'm not is I don't even remember who warned me about this. But I love to read and write about reading in high school. Someone told me it won't be fun anymore if you pursue that. And I was scared and I believed them. And I know plenty of English majors who never reached the breaking point and who have the benefit of having studied all those classic works in school and contemporary works at the time they were a student. And I envy that. But, oh, I don't envy your breaking point. Okay, so tell me more about that. Well, it is true that, you know, if you do a degree in, in English literature, you have the opportunity to read all these incredible works. Um, you know, for example, I would have never read Portrait of a Lady by myself. It was a total slog until I think the last 40 pages when it was absolutely transcendent. I think the problem became when I came time to my own recreational reading, all I could think of was the technical terms. All I could see was, oh, here's theme. Here's, you know, where mm -hmm. the author did this and did they do it well or did they not do it well? I just couldn't engage with the characters or the plot very easily anymore. So immediately after my English lit degree, I went and, and did a law degree. And throughout law school, I read graphic novels pretty much exclusively. 
one, because, you know, the workload is, is pretty intense, but two, I think I was still in a, in a hangover for my English literature degree. But I think the nice thing about graphic novels is, you know, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of sort of visual interest that pulls you into the story. So it just took me a little while to be able to take off my academic lens and just, you know, enjoy a book again. But I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm over that phase in my life. And now I'm facing another issue, which I'm hoping to talk to you about today. Well, tell me about it. So when my husband and I returned to Calgary, um, I'd been living for six years in London. One of the things that arose is, of course, you're transitioning between jobs and suddenly I've had a lot of time to explore my hobbies again. And one of them is creative writing. It's something that I loved to do when I was younger, but I, again, I think the academic experience kind of killed it for me. <laughs> I'm exploring it again. I'm loving it. I'm preparing pieces for submission you know, to various things. But the problem that I'm facing now is as I write my own stuff, I find it so difficult to concentrate on other people's works. And it's the most dismaying thing in the world because, you know, if you want to get better as a writer, you have to read. And I've never, aside from, you know, that, that blip in, in university, I've never had a problem I just sort of continuously reading. And now I find myself sort of between books, flipping through books, reading a couple pages here and there and just never settling into one work. And it is so disconcerting. Do you have a theory for what you think is going on? I suspect that one of the issues is that when you're writing, you know, you're trying to find your own voice, your own style, maybe in the process of developing it, when you read somebody else's work, you're so sort of engrossed in what you're trying to create that, that suddenly sort of switching focus and allowing yourself to sink into somebody else's prose is a bit of a, a shift too far. Uh, this is my theory. I don't know if it's actually true. Mm -hmm. But that's what I'm finding. I still read, I still will read like a couple paragraphs of different novels or nonfiction just to get a sense of, oh, how did they do this? How did they do transition from a scene? How did they arrange their words? But, you know, again, that's sort of reading for a specific purpose as opposed to reading for enjoyment. Mm -hmm. I read a book back in the fall. It was interesting. It was not entertaining. It was called What We Talk About When We Talk About Books. The History and Future of Reading. It was by Leah Price. I listened to the audio, not my favorite format for that book, perhaps, but it was five hours and, you know, I could finish it in just a few sessions of long runs. But something that really stuck with me from reading that book, because, you know, sometimes you read a book and you may not have loved the book, but there was one line or one idea that you are so glad is now part of you and you wouldn't give it up for anything. And that's how I feel about this. But she talked at length about what we do when we make reading a means to an end. And that is whether we are reading a book because we have to write a paper about it or because we're reading because we've been told that it will give us more empathy. You know, like I definitely believe in how reading makes you actually a better person because it makes you kinder and more empathetic. And those are wonderful things. But if you're reading with the end being the only reason you're doing it. I mean, where's the fun in that? Well, exactly. It sounds like it's so easy for you right now to read as a means to an end, not for the reasons you used to when you're reading because you enjoyed reading. Gosh, I never thought of it like that, but you're right. I have sort of unconsciously fallen into that mode of reading. And oh, I would so love some help to get out of it. 
Lacey, do you have other writers that you talk to about about your writing? I do. I've recently started a writers group um, with another woman who's writing a memoir, and um, I've just been attending some classes at the kind of local writing center. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it's really it's really wonderful to to find a community. But thus far, I actually haven't spoken about this problem to anybody else. I don't know if anybody else suffers from it. I think you will find if you hang out with other writers. I don't believe this is universally true. But I've heard it said time and time again, writers need to be really careful about what they're reading while they're writing because you don't want someone else's voice to influence your own. And I feel like that can sound really pretentious. Like if you're listening and you're not a writer and you're like now picturing us with our like berets and our like long (laughs) cigarette handle things like they hadn't, no, like that's not what's happening here. It's like when I go to Texas, I come back and I can't stop saying y'all yes, because I have enough y'all naturally in me growing up in Kentucky that when I'm around people saying y'all for a few days, I'm like, yep, this reminds me of how I think this sounds adorable and comfortable and I can't stop. That's also true for writers. Like when I was writing my new book, Don't Overthink It, I read so much fiction without fear of it influencing my writing voice because it was so totally different. And that was a joy because I I was like, oh, I can't read how-to books. What I really need to read right now for the sake of my craft is like a new mystery. I mean, of course, like good style is good style, but I wasn't afraid that I'd read Louise Penny and then suddenly start sounding like Louise Penny in my like personal growth book, you know? And is this is this the kind of thing you're talking about? I think it could be. Yes, it is definitely unconscious, but I just I you know, I never thought about maybe just trying to read a book in a genre that is so totally different and maybe not something that I usually read. So for example, I don't typically tend to read mysteries. I do love it when, you know, a a book has a kind of mystery element to it, but I don't specifically sit down and read a a police procedural, for example. And now I'm starting to think that maybe I should, (laughs) because I certainly don't write in, in that genre. I tend to, you know, at the moment, I'm kind of writing the lyrical YA. So maybe I just need to like jump into a really hard-boiled detective novel and that'll just knock me right out of my, <laughs> my rut because, yes, what I'm doing right now, it's definitely not working. I mean, if you're writing lyrical YA, then you absolutely want to be reading lyrical YA, but not at the same time. There's another hazard to reading while you're writing. When you put down your draft that you've been working on, that depending on what stage you're in, might not be good, like not at all. And then you pick up a book that's a lot closer to the finished version of what you hope to Mm. produce. It can just be totally demoralizing. Like, (laughs) oh, I can never take what's on my Microsoft Word screen right now and make it look like anything resembling finished work that's a pleasure to read, like this one right in front of me. It can just be really bad for morale. Oh, that's so true. And I I haven't reached that point yet where... I felt like my finished work was even like I could even compare it. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's so far beyond whatever the finished work is that I'm looking at. It's so on a whole other level that uh, I haven't quite faced that yet. Maybe that's a good thing. Or maybe one day, you know, whatever I've written will be close enough to whatever the finished product I'm looking at. And then I will start to feel those pangs of anxiety and I will know I have made it. (laughs) (laughs) Lacey, it sounds like your reading life for the past maybe 10 years, it sounds like you've had a bumpy ride. I don't know. I'm picturing like this tide going in and out. You started in a good place. 
you went to school, you had your breaking point, you finished, you were working hard, practicing criminal law, so you wanted to read YA. Now you're writing and that's having its effect on your reading life. I mean, this is this is a lot of changes for a reader. It is. And you know, until you just mentioned that, I'd never thought about it in that way. That's the benefit of talking to you because of course, looking at it, you can see you have a long view. And whereas I don't, I'm sort of in the middle of it. But yes, I guess, I guess that's true. Part of it as well, the bumpiness can be attributed to my own reading habits. When I was living in London, there would be so many circumstances when I'd be out with my husband and we would go to a bookstore and I'd look at a book and I'd say, oh, I really want to read that. And he'd say, okay, well, well, why don't you get it? And I would tell him, no, I can't because I've already got a copy of this back in Canada. <laughs> so I cannot buy it here. And then he would look at me and he'd say, well, why didn't you read it when you were in Canada? And that's a very good question. But the problem that I, I often face is, is that I'm a big mood reader. You know, I'll be in the bookstore and I'll see something and I'll go, oh, that looks really fabulous. And I'll pick it up and then I'll bring it home and I'll read a couple paragraphs and go, "Mm, I'm not in the mood for this right now. And I'll, I'll go pick up another book and finish that. That's sort of been my reading practice ever since I got my first job in a bookstore. Your first job in a bookstore? Yeah. So when I was 17, I got hired to work in a bookstore. That was my very first job ever. And it was a delight because I spent most of my time sort of browsing the books as opposed to actually, you know, shelving them properly. But anyways. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to blame you for that. Oh, gosh, I can't even. It was horrible. I, I did do my job. And to this day, I will still go into a bookstore. And if I see that the books are not arranged properly or like in alphabetical order or they're falling over, I will actually straighten it out of habit. I remember having this conversation with my manager and she was, she'd been reading The Devil Wears Prada. And she said, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good book, but I'm not going to finish reading it. And I, I was just like flabbergasted. Said, what, what are you talking about? She said, well, you know, life's too short. If you're not enjoying the book, don't finish it. I think that was just such a revelation for me that I've never forgotten it. And ever since then, you know, if a book doesn't sort of grab me within the first few pages, I will put it down and I will go look for another book. All of which is to say, this is the reason why I have whole bookshelves of unread books. I have every intention of reading. I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. So we've got to get you in the same place as your books when the mood is right. Exactly. The living accommodations in London can be very, very tight. You know, it's a very densified kind of city. So in London, I was very conscious of not buying too many books. But when my husband and I made the decision to come back to Canada, and I was telling him about my mother's basement, which is just filled with my books. You know, he said, when we come back, we're, we're going to make you a bookshelf of shame because it will remind you that you will, that you need to read all these books. <laughs> oh, a bookshelf, a bookshelf of, shame. of shame. How about a bookshelf of anticipatory delight? Oh, I love it. Oh, that's such a good title for such a bookshelf. <laughs> it's not as snappy as your husband's version though. I will say my husband is very, as a reader, he's extremely good at finishing books, even when he doesn't like the book. And I'm the complete opposite. So I've just sort of collected these books over the years. I do believe that there's like a time in your life when you're meant to read a book. So for example, I one of the books that I bought, I think 10 years ago when it was published was um, Hillary Jordan's Mudbound. And I bought it knowing, okay, I know I'm going to like this book. You know, it's set in the South talks a lot about racial issues. Um, It's a family drama. I know I'm going to like it. But I was like 22 at the time. 
and things just sort of, I just never got around to it. But a couple of months ago, when I came back to Calgary, I sat down and I opened it and I read the whole thing and it was totally engrossing. And I feel like reading it now, the emotional impact of the book was bigger than I think I would have experienced it to be when I was 22. You know, because it talks about marriage, it talks about infidelity. And I'm in that space in my life now where I'm st- I can understand those experiences. Mm-hmm. So in my defense, I may have a bookshelf of shame, but <laughs> I do get around to reading them eventually. I mean, words are powerful. So I can see how one reader could call it that, but another reader could view it entirely differently. I'm thinking of our episode with Will Schwalbe. He talked about how he had all these unread books when he needs a book to read next. He goes and shops his own bookshelves to find that next read. That's just a different way to approach the same collection of unread books. I like it I, because it, it sort of implies not an obligation, but a choice and uh, joy, which is what reading really ought to be. <laughs> well, and I really like the idea that you tossed out that there is a time in your life when you're meant to read a book. I am in that part of my life now where, you know, marriage, kids, you know, more adult obligations are sort of crowding in and reading YA is wonderful, but they don't talk about you know, these issues, because obviously, it's about a different part of your life. And I I just I really I think I need to read something where I can see myself in the pages again. And now you're at a time in your life, unlike before when you feel like you're wanting to go there. Previously, when I was in London and practicing criminal law, I didn't have the headspace to sort of grapple with the problems of fictional characters when I was sort of wrestling with the real life problems of people who, you know, were facing very serious serious charges in their own life. So yeah, now that I'm sort of free of that kind of emotional um, and psychological obligation, I'm definitely ready to take on something a little more serious or perhaps a little more thorny in my own reading life. Lacey, this sounds like fun. I'm excited. (laughs) Okay. So decide what to add to your stack or, I mean, it would be really great if we could identify some books on that bookshelf that we will not designate a name to. (laughs) I mean, maybe we'll discover that the time is now right to read some of those books that you've had in your collection for a long time now. But first, we got to talk about what kind of books are right for you. Are you ready to do this? Yes, let's do it. Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and we will talk about what you may enjoy reading next. How did you choose these books, Lazy? When I chose these books, I thought long and hard about the books that I love to go back to and reread but also the books that sort of blew my world apart in terms of um, widening my perspective, whether on, on emotional states or things that are happening out in the real world. And also, I just chose books that really surprised me. You know, the first book I chose was Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. This is a book I reread every single year. I read Austen's completed works every year. But I chose this one in particular because it always makes me laugh and it gets funnier the older I get. I don't know why. I think maybe distance allows you to sort of look at the heroine's progress throughout the novel in a new light. I just love Catherine Moreland. She's such a kind and good-hearted character. And, you know, her interactions with the romantic interest Henry Tilney and her uh, stumbles, but eventually her growth. It's just so wonderful to read and to laugh out loud about. 
the other reason I chose Northanger Abbey was because I feel like Jane Austen is such a literary rebel. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about that. I mean, as I'm sure you know, she was a huge fan of Gothic novels, Gothic literature, which of course at the time was causing a huge moral panic about, you know, what it was doing to young girls and how it was affecting their health. And I love that by writing Northanger Abbey, she's putting herself out there and saying, I love Gothic novels. I read these and I love them enough to, you know, write my own take on them. But B, she sort of takes that kind of discourse around the novel and flips it on its head. So instead of you know, showing Catherine suffering from all these very strange maladies that you were supposed to have gotten if you read a Gothic novel. Instead, she's sort of suffering from an inability to really understand, you know, human interactions or to read people properly. And, you know, the whole novel is her learning how to do that. I just love that Jane Austen wasn't afraid to take what was so popular and so commercial and really make it her own. I think it's one of my bugbears, you know, whenever some Somebody says, oh, I, I refuse to read X because it's this kind of genre or it's, mm-hmm. you know, written by this kind of author. Mm-hmm. It just really drives me a little bit off the wall. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate Jane Austen putting herself out there like that. One of my favorite little snippets of commentary I've ever read on Northanger Abbey is along the lines of what you're saying. It's in William Duresowitz's book, A Jane Austen Education. Mm-hmm. I wish I had the exact words in front of me. I may have to go back and read this chapter again. But he says, Jane Austen could never have skewered the gothic novels so brilliantly had she not been reading those things by the bucketful. (laughs) And I just love the idea of Jane Austen just with a giant stack of, basically I was picturing my collection of Babysitter's Club. Um, (laughs) If I read like a lot of Harlequin romance, I would picture like that kind of book. But I'm just thinking about like the inexpensive, readily available paperbacks that everyone is reading. I like to picture Jane Austen with a big similar stack of gothic novels. She was doing her research. Absolutely. Oh, what a wonderful image. (laughs) And I love what else you said about readers categorically dismissing certain kinds of books. Because I think so often you don't know what you're missing if you've never gone there. I hope that that implies that you have a spirit of adventure in your own reading life. Oh, absolutely. Yes. One of the things actually that I've noticed about my reading life recently is it has become more adventurous than it was when I was living in London. And I think a large part of that is because in the UK, books, particularly on Kindle, are extremely cheap. When you couple that with the fact that libraries are being shut down by the hundreds uh, in the UK, you know, you what you end up doing is you end up sort of buying the same kinds of books that you always read. And coming back to Calgary, you know, Kindle books are so much more expensive in Canada. But as well, Calgary has a wonderful public library system. And I live very close to the Central Library, which was recently redone, a huge collection. So every week I go and I end up just browsing the shelves and looking around. And what that means is that I am sort of venturing into books that I wouldn't normally pick up. And it's been a lot of fun sort of seeing what's out there. Um, So definitely a spirit of adventure. I'm glad to hear it. Lacey, what did you choose for your second favorite? My second favorite is something completely different, a book called Dispatches by Michael Hare. I was sort of intrigued by the cover, so I picked it up. But it's just, oh, it blew me away. I've always been sort of a fan of military nonfiction, which is really weird considering what demographic I fall into. (laughs) 
I'm like in my thirties, I'm a Chinese Canadian woman. It's not, I, I think people, when people think of like military nonfiction fans, I'm probably not the person that comes to mind, but I've always had a, a soft spot for it ever since I read Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden. I think the thing that really just sort of shook me was the prose of dispatches. I mean, Michael Hare, he was a journalist in the Vietnam War. And the way he writes about the war is sort of unlike anything I've ever read. His writing is so hallucinatory. When he writes, he doesn't explain jargon. He just kind of drops you in the middle. And so the effect is is just as bewildering as this conflict. Of course, all the images of the Vietnam War that we have because of pop culture, apocalypse now, all of that is based in this work and I can see it. And just the effect that he gets is so incredible. But I also love the humor that he uses in it and the way he is able to examine the complicity of war journalists in conflicts, um, including his own. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really, it's he's not afraid to examine it. And I really appreciate that kind of honesty, especially in nonfiction. And the other thing that I thought was so, so intriguing about it is like, it's a, almost like a mystery within a mystery. He talks about uh, one of his friends and colleagues, who was the son of Errol Flynn. Sean Flynn was his name, and he was a photojournalist, and he went missing in Cambodia during the conflict. You know, his body has never been found. We don't know what has happened to him. So all throughout, you know, his various essays about the war, there's this kind of haunting, unresolved mystery about his friend. I always think it's so interesting when the backstory of a nonfiction work is as intriguing as the work itself. And it kind of put me in mind of I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, because of course she was writing about the Golden State Killer and the unresolved crimes that he committed. She passed away before she finished the book. So that's what I really enjoyed about Dispatches. That sounds fascinating. I've not read anything by Michael Hare yet. I hope I sold it to you, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) I think you made it sound incredible. Lacey, what did you choose to round out your favorites? My third pick is a YA novel, because of course I love YA, so I couldn't not pick something from all those incredible works. Uh, This novel is a sequel. It's called Thunderhead by Neil Shusterman, and it's the sequel of his side series. The premise, of course, is that somewhere in the near future, humanity has eradicated illness and death. But the only way to keep the population under control is people called scythes who go around occasionally killing people. You know, we follow two young protagonists as they undertake this profession, I guess is what you would call it. And I picked it because Scythe and Thunderhead are are really the first books I've ever listened to on audio. I've never listened to an audiobook before. Last year, I saw that Audible in the UK was offering some sort of deal. So I thought, okay, let me try this out. I've never done this before, but it could be fun. And it was incredible. Greg Tremblay is the narrator for Thunderhead, and he does a wonderful job really distinguishing between all the characters. And his narration just sucks you in. The plot moves quickly, but it always feels like it's in a a kind of a natural unfolding. What I loved about Thunderhead is when I was reading it, it was like I was watching a movie. I could see it was so epic the way the scenes unfolded and the emotion was so strong, especially by the end of it. And Neil Schusterman has such a fabulous way of taking very serious concepts and just spinning them out in a really entertaining way. 
and exploring them in a very in a very deep way without sort of making you realize that he's doing it. I've now actually introduced the series to my husband and we listen to it on our car journeys out to the mountains when we go skiing. He's really gotten into it now too. So I'm really pleased. <laughs> yeah. Lacey, now tell me about a book that wasn't right for you. Oh, and Okay. This book is a YA novel. It's The Last Voyage of Poe Blythe by Ali Condi. In my reading log, I have like, you know, little ratings and little comments about what I liked and what I didn't like. And this was the only book last year that I gave like a half star. Wait, what? I feel horrible because now that like I'm the one, you know, I'm trying to like write my own stuff. I know how much effort and time and heart goes into these things. But I was so mad about this book. (laughs) The first thing was when I picked up this book, I was like, oh, I'm so excited by this premise. You know, it's awesome. It's a young, strong girl, the captain of her own ship. You know, she lives in this kind of dystopian world. For me, strong women on ships, like I am like, yes, I am there. Totally. This sounds like an awesome premise. As soon as I opened up, it just never quite lived up to it. And I think when you have high hopes for a book and then it doesn't live up to it, I think it can really, you know, maybe the book if it's mediocre suddenly becomes worse in your eyes because you've had such hopes. I do think expectations are a real and powerful influence on how you approach a book. You know, the main character, she would have all these internal dialogue sections they were just sort of like a series of questions. What should I do now? Should I trust him? How can I know that I should trust him? What should I do about this? And it wasn't like once or twice. It's It felt like every chapter had a very long paragraph of this litany of questions. I just found that it took me out of the story. And I think perhaps it, if it had been shown in a different way, I wouldn't have been so baffled by all these questions that were sort of littering. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that might have read differently to you if you had been a teen reader. That's a really good point. I mean, I don't know how you were when I was when you were a teenager, but when I was a teenager, I was <laughs> I probably asked a lot of annoying questions. Yeah, very self-involved, right? Like everything is about you and like what you're going to do next and Totally right. developmentally appropriate. And yeah, yeah. You're right. Oh, gosh. Now I might have to go back and reread this book. I mean, I've read and loved many YA books, and many adults read and love YA novels, and many teens read and love adult novels. So I'm not saying stay in your lane. It's not written for you. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying sometimes what an author is doing doesn't make sense to us as a reader if we don't understand why they're doing it. So I'm just asking if that's a possibility. I think it's definitely a possibility. And it's one that I've never considered before. There were other issues that I had with the book. I mean, the other one was that, and this is totally my fault. I thought it was a standalone novel. So when I got to the end of the book and I realized that nothing had really resolved and that there was going to be a continuation, I was so sort of confused. I really probably should have just done my research. But, you know, when I picked up the book and read the (laughs) synopsis, I thought, oh, sometimes you're just in the mood to read a standalone book as opposed to one that's part of a trilogy. As we're talking, I sort of feel like maybe... (laughs) my opinions of this book say far more about me and my expectations than the book itself. I mean, I think that's true, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, when you're talking about a reader reading a book, there's the reader and the book both in that equation. I mean, that's how you have a reading experience. So of course it says a lot about you as a reader. And that is the information that we rely on to choose our next read. And that is okay. (laughs) Makes me feel slightly less, slightly less guilty. Lacey, what are you reading now? The books that I 
managed to finish recently. Um, one of them is called The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch by Daniel Krauss. It's a really interesting novel because, you know, it's kind of billed as a YA novel, but the themes and the subject matter are, are really quite dark. So it follows a, a, a young man who was killed, but is somehow resurrected. And he goes on this sort of adventure across America throughout the years, um, throughout the turbulent years of the 20th century. As a narrator, he's really engaging. I love it when protagonists have very strong voices and his voice is very unique. You know, he uses really ornate language and that's totally in keeping with his character because he he prides himself on on being very eloquent. Though I have to say I wouldn't recommend it for highly sensitive people because you know it it deals with possible animal mu- animal mutilation and things like that. You know, it gets quite grim. So if you're able to stomach it, it's a really fun read. And then the other thing that I finished recently was amazing reminded me of what the reading experience should be is The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. I mean, it's just a fantastic romance novel about a woman with autism. And for me, I think one of the things that really mattered was the fact that her love interest is Asian, you know, because I'm Chinese Canadian. And growing up, I never saw love interests who were Asian. You know, I think there's this uh, discourse that, that often happens in Western media and things like that of Asian men sort of not being as attractive or not being as masculine as their Western counterparts. They're not sort of viewed as objects of desire. And all of a sudden I'm reading this book and, you know, her love interest is this very sexy, half Swedish, half Korean guy who looks like a K-pop star. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is speaking (laughs) to me on a very visceral level. And it's just funny and so sexy. And I was like, this is great. I am totally here for it. Lacey, that gives us a lot to work with. So the books you love, Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, Dispatches by Michael Hare, and Thunderhead by Neil Schusterman. Not for You was the YA novel, The Last Voyage of Poe Blythe by Ali Condi. And you are ready and willing to go all kinds of different places You're interested in a variety of genres, and I'm definitely aware of the fact that now that you have the space and brain power to tackle more challenging works than you did back when you were practicing criminal law, I want to give some of those to you. All right. So, and I know that you love uh, beautiful prose, complex themes. You have a soft spot in your heart for YA novels and the way that they're so readable. Is that a good way to put that? Absolutely. Yeah. I would so love to find adult fiction or nonfiction that has the same kind of compelling drive as a YA novel. So yes, absolutely. Well, I wasn't expecting you to throw out Helen Wong. (laughs) But since you did, I recently finished a new adult romance that's coming out in June from Berkeley. It's by Sarah Desai. It's called The Marriage Game. It does not have a Chinese leading man, but he is Indian. I am all for representation. I love it. Okay. This book is called The Marriage Game by Sarah Desai. It has an adorable cover. Like so many books that are set in San Francisco do, it's so unfair. They just get to put like some houses on a hill in a streetcar on the cover. And it's, I mean, you have a darling book. Like this is how it works. It's an unfair advantage that San Francisco settings have over all the other romance novels out there. It's not like the openest of open doors, but there is definitely some sexy time in this book. So readers heads up. So now that we've got disclaimer out of the way, 
This recruitment consultant, her name is Layla Patel. She's been living in New York with a guy who was not right for her. So she has moved home to her tight-knit family in San Francisco. Uh, They all live close to each other. Her family lives right by the Indian restaurant that her parents have been running for a really long time. So she comes home to lick her wounds and put her life back together and to do it under the loving supervision of her family. But as soon as she gets home, her dad has a heart attack and she's devastated, needs to pull it together. And this is really sad. And so I need to tell you that this is definitely a fun, funny, lighthearted book. But because her dad has had a heart attack, that is the only reason she's willing to indulge him when she finds out that he has posted her profile on a really funny website that has a hysterical name. And I wish I had the book in my hand so I could look it up. I didn't know when I was reading that this detail was going to be needed on what should I read next very soon. So it's our parents' generation helping their children arrange marriages. So her father has taken in all these resumes of all these men. He's narrowed the list to 10 oh my goodness. and has set up all these meetings. And because her dad had a heart attack, she's like, okay, I'll do it. But this is a romance novel. So we got to introduce like our leading man who's also fun and funny. He's, have you seen the movie Up in the Air where George Clooney flies around the country firing people? Yes, I have. Okay. This is what Sam Mehta does in this book. He runs with his old pal, whose motives are not as pure as Sam's, um, a corporate downsizing company. He fires people for a living and he needed a quiet office for his business. He's rented the office above the restaurant from Layla's dad. But nobody knows this. So Layla walks into what she thinks is her office to like get her life started again one day. And there's this man there. And not only is he a man, but he's really a jerk of a man, but also he's a really handsome man. It's his space, but Layla really wants it. But he lets her stay and they work out a deal and they kind of make a bet. And he starts helping her with her 10 blind dates with all these Indian men. How does that sound as a setup to you? It's so sweet and charming and funny. And it's definitely like more than a little spicy in places. So you you read Helen Wong. So I know that you're great with that. But readers, if you're listening, please take note. That being said, it's just so fun. The Marriage Game, Sarah Desai. How does that sound? It sounds wonderful. You can't see it right now, but I was smiling ear to ear when you were describing the setup. I just, there's something about romance tropes and like, you know, the the inevitable meet cute. Oh, I love it. It's fun. And I really like her. Layla is unapologetic about her life. So fun. I was really cheering them on. And also there are enough food description in this book where I was like, I just need, I need lunch. I need lunch right now. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Am I allowed to recommend a YA novel to you? Yes. Yes, you are. I actually thought this was an adult novel. And then when I looked it up, I realized, no, this is actually being reviewed. It is a children's publication like YA novels are. Mm. Um, Have you read The Strange and Beautiful Sorrows of Ava Lavender? No, I haven't. Good. I'm so glad. So this novel is about five-ish years old. And what I love about it for you is that it has a lot of substance, a lot of heart. The writing is beautiful. It's whimsical. It's got a strong magical component because this is about a girl who is completely normal in every way, except she was born with wings. Tiny, tiny detail. Oh, wow. The writing is really gorgeous. Did I already say that? And also, it is incredibly fast paced. So you're looking for a book that has that addictive, I just need to keep reading feeling. I think this could be good. This is by Leslie Walton. This is her debut, actually. 
You know, I guess we could say another thing that sets Ava Lavender apart is that she has a strong family and a strong family history. So this is a multi-generational novel. It almost feels like a fairy tale in places. There's a heavy dose of family legend. So even though the story revolves around this 16-year-old girl who was born with wings, we go back in time and hear her whole family history halfway around the world. Her grandmother was a child in rural France, and then she traveled to 1920s Manhattan, and then she became a baker in Seattle. This is another book that will make you hungry because the grandmother's pastries mm-hmm. are important. And the symbolism of the pastries, you need the right mix of ingredients and you need the sweet and the salty mm. to have a satisfying dish. And the same could really be said about the book. So we hear all about her grandmother and then we hear about Ava's mother and how when she was young, she was deeply in love with a childhood friend who didn't love her back and how that affected her and her family history. And then we get to Ava Lavender, who of course has her own struggles and loves. The sorrows of the title is almost a pun because of a character in the book. She has a great friend named Cardigan, which I thought was just totally adorable. (laughs) But what I like about this for you is it's lyrical, whimsical, fantastical, but gently so YA that um, is also strongly action driven. I think it does have that addictive quality you're looking for. It's just a beautiful story. How does that sound to you? Yeah, it sounds absolutely at my wheelhouse. I do love fairy tale novels and retellings. So I would definitely check that one out. I'm glad to hear it. Lacey, finally, this book is perfect for you, but it might be so perfect. You've read it already. (laughs) Neil Gaiman. The Ocean at the End of the Lane. You know what? I actually haven't read this book yet. (laughs) Is it on your bookshelf? It is not. No. Oh, I was hoping we could cross one off. Oh, no. It's okay, though, because I've seen it everywhere. And obviously, I've I've heard about it. But I, I actually know nothing about the story. I love Neil Gaiman's works for younger readers, so Coraline and Stardust. But I haven't actually read much of his adult stuff. This is definitely an adult novel. Even though one of the timelines in the story focuses on a young boy and what happens to his family after something unexpected, uh, not quite of this world, and holy but subtly terrifying happens. You're seeing the story through a child's eyes, but oh, no, I would not hand this to a child. This is an adult novel. That's a long-winded way of saying, yes, this is an adult novel. This is a slim book that packs a serious punch. I think it's just under 200 pages. The protagonist is an artist, which is not the reason I'm recommending it, but I do think it's a really nice fit for you right now as you are creating in a way that you haven't been for a while. He is called back to his home in the English countryside because uh, someone has died. So he goes back to attend a funeral. And when he does, he takes a walk and he's in a reflective mood and he starts remembering what happened to his family something like 40 years prior when he was a young boy, because this is a Neil Gaiman novel. This woman, where she appears to be a woman, she appears to be a housekeeper. She weasels her way into the family and very, very quickly, his stable world is completely rocked and it is devastating to this child. So for help, he turns to the family of witches Mm. at the farm up the road. But Getting through that experience, really defeating this evil, because that's the kind of thing that Neil Gaiman writes about, requires things of this boy that 
he was not prepared for. And I'm having a really hard time putting what this book is about into words because to me, this book is a feeling Mm. Uh, so evocative and atmospheric. The cover with its ocean blues, it's so beautiful and moody. And that's what this book is. If you're a mood reader, reading this book in the right mood will be absolutely perfect. It's just completely immersive. It's so fascinating. And it's the kind of story that you read and you think, how do people come up with these ideas? Another reason why this is an adult book is that Gaiman writes so well about regret and also that sense of lost innocence. And it's just so poignant and present on the page. It's really powerful. How does that sound? My heart is just so gripping with with emotion just listening to it because I mean, you said that you, you didn't feel like you were describing it. I really understood it because even if you don't talk about the plot, but just the fact that it's about memory and distance from a childhood that sort of went off the rails a little bit. I think that's so, so intriguing because, you know, often in YA novels, you're telling it in a particular time and place, and you don't have that perspective yet that you have on those experiences when you're older. And it sounds like this book sort of combines the best of both worlds into one. I hope so. So Lacey, of those three books, we talked about The Marriage Game by Sarah Desai. The Strange and Beautiful Sorrows of Ava Lavender by Leslie Walton, and The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I'm going to start with The Strange and Beautiful Sorrows of Ava Lavender by Leslie Walton. Well, I love the sound of that, and I can't wait to hear what you think. When I read it, you will be the first to know, Anne. Well, I can't wait to hear. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Lacey, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 224, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Follow Lacey on Instagram at lacey.young. That's at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y dot young, Y-O-N-G. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Instagram, find me there at what should I read next and at Anne Vogel. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Get all our bookish news and get it first by signing up for our free weekly newsletter at what should I read next podcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, you've got one more week to pre-order my next book. Don't overthink it. I'd appreciate it so much. Available wherever new books are sold and to anticipate a frequently asked question. Yes, that includes your local independent bookstore. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>